How do we break free from the cage that outrage can put us in? And that to navigate that question, to answer that tension, I want us to look at a verse, a passage that's just a few passages further down than the one we looked at last week. It's a passage from the book of Proverbs that is written by a king who's trying to prepare his children for royal things. And that while it's written 3,000 years ago in a day and an age where there wasn't an information overload, where there wasn't um, constant bombardment and a simple newspaper has more information than a lifetime, it was unique in the sense that there was one area where information overload was part of life, and it was to be part of royalty. It was the equivalent of the information age and the ancient times. You see, the king, queen, the royal court were often the ones who were holding court to decide cases. They were the ones who, over the course of one day, may be presented with tens or hundreds of different requests, petitions, uh, diplomatic um, potential agreements, and even some of the basic, this person trespassed on my land, what do I do? And so for Solomon, trying to prepare his children for what life was going to look like, he knows that there is a danger and a tendency to get overwhelmed by the information, to find themselves kind of paralyzed, trying to analyze it all. And so he writes this passage almost 3,000 years ago that I think has incredibly helpful wisdom for us in this year that we find ourselves in. It's in Proverbs 18, 17, and it goes like this, in a lawsuit. The first to speak seems right until someone comes forward and cross-examines. See, what we see even embedded in this passage is a throwback to the verse that we looked at last week. That there's a tendency, he says, in a lawsuit, the first to speak seems right. There's a tendency to, to hurry up and feel, to feel an opinion, not to have formed an opinion, to hear the passion to hear the details, to kind of sense the pressure from the person presenting, and in the process of hearing that case and its compellingness to have felt an opinion. But he wants to make sure that his children understand that we don't fill opinions, we form them. And I think for us, this is eerily similar to our struggle, right? If you remember from last week, uh, um, put up this research graphic from an MIT study that um, mapped the networks of interactions that people had on social media. And what they essentially found is that people's interactions uh, essentially formed echo chambers. That the Republican social media tweets and Facebook posts um, all seemed to live in the same atmosphere and environment. And that the Democratic Facebook posts and tweets, they all also lived inside. Um, I often chuckle, I've cultivated a Facebook feed that's purple so that I kind of get a, a, a unique mix of like what both sides are trying to talk about and what memes both sides are using. And as I scroll through, oftentimes I'll see someone over here um, kind of lamb blasting someone over here and, and then someone over here, you know, lamb blasting someone on this side and what I know and what this study has shown is that most people over here writing this post think they're arguing these people into their camp. 
And that these people, with their compelling post and their, their kind of little jabs, think that someone in their newsfeed from over here is going to see it and say, ah, oh, I was wrong. I'm going to change my political views that I've held my entire life because of your Facebook post. Thanks, guy. Right? Like, that doesn't happen. And yet, we somehow think that it will. And what often happens in both camps, what drives these echo chambers is this hurry up and fill. Oh, that feels right. That feels, yeah, yeah. They don't care about fill-in-the-blank people group, or they don't care about the economy. Right? I'm going to repost it. And what ends up happening is um, things that aren't true spread like wildfire. And because of the echo chambers that we live in, it's possible to get sucked into it and to feel completely right and to be absolutely wrong. Which reminds me of how babies come into the world. Via storks, right? Isn't that what your parents told you when you were six years old and you asked that profound question, where do babies come from? And their answer, as sincere as it could be, was a very large bird carries that baby across endless oceans in a tiny thin cloth and then drops them at our feet. That's how your brother or sister came here. The drop zone is at a hospital, so that's why we go there, right? As ridiculous as that explanation sounds, believe it or not, in 1965, in the middle of a Senate congressional hearing, that story was told. You see, it was a, a Senate congressional hearing around cigarette smoking, that what it kind of began to churn in Europe was a series of studies digging into the link between cigarettes and cancer. Now, and up until the 60s, there was kind of a little bit of a disbelief that cigarettes and cancer were linked. There were a lot of other explanations that people had given, and some researchers ended up diving into uh, cigarettes and cancer. So by 1960s, it's kind of full force here in America, and the um, cigarette kind of lobbying and industry hires an individual to go and testify. And as he's testifying and questioning this correlated connection between cigarettes and lung cancer, he launches into the story of storks, specifically that one of the most compelling reasons for storks being the carriers and deliverers of babies of those like ancient fertile Amazon shipping containers he makes the point that in Europe that you see on European homes stork nests on top of their chimney. And that it seems to be that the more children in a home, the more storks that are present on the house. And that when the senators pressed back and said, Do you, are you really telling us that the correlation we've seen between cigarettes and lung cancer is to you, the same as what we see with storks on homes? And his response was, yes, direct quote, it seems to me the same. Now, that witness's name who was testifying was Daryl Huff, who was a news journalist at the time, but who to this day, even after 60 years, 70 years after he published his book that has a cult following, if they had just looked into the book title, they would have caught on to something. You see, in 1954, he wrote a book called How to Lie with Statistics. And the book that he was writing that 
he never got to publish before he died, and I am not joking with you, was called How to Lie with Smoking Statistics, right? And so had they just leaned in a little bit, they would have noticed that Daryl Huff was doing the very thing he wrote about in his book. And this isn't uncommon. This is very much the norm in, the, in an information overload kind of age. We're constantly bombarded with things like this, which is why Solomon says to his children, look, in a lawsuit, the first to speak seems right. Of course, storks, babies, makes sense, right? And he says, until someone comes forward and cross-examines it. That there is an intentional call to action that Solomon says to his children. He says, look, it's, if you sit passive, the first case that comes is going to sound right. It's going to feel good. And you're going to say, yeah. But unless you shift from passive to active and you step in, you come forward and you cross-examine, that's, that's when it will start to change. And I think this particular piece of wisdom is really needed today. In a day and age where constant bombarding of false claims and convenient lies and compelling memes and humor and all the different variety of takes, this is something that's really useful for us to start to internalize because we're living and experiencing the same thing that the king and queens of the old would have. We're put in a position to have to decide between information. Uh, one of, uh, I love history, and oftentimes that kind of leaks out in uh, the messages, but there was a group of individuals in World War II that had an incredible impact on Americans, the, kind of the Allies' victory. The, you, most people are aware of the scientists uh, around the Manhattan Project, but there was another group of scientists that were part of the statistical research group. Now, statistical research group sounds really boring. In fact, it sounds like um, maybe what you would see on a building in some city somewhere is part of some type of analyst. But the statistical research group, the name really betrayed how truly exciting this group was. This was a group of mathematicians, statisticians, and scientists whose job was to make allies, the allied calls stronger and more effective. They would design uh, flight paths to make bombing runs more strategic and more effective. They would work on missile theory. They would um, help to supply information and work with and around the Manhattan Project. These were a group of top secret scientists, mathematicians, and the smartest of the entire group was a man named Abraham Wald. He was arguably one of the smartest men alive in a time when there was a lot of smart men and women working on some pretty incredible uh, advanced research. And one of the stories that's been told about Abraham Wald that came out after kind of the group was declassified was an issue the allies were having with airplanes being shot down. So they collected a bunch of data trying to determine where do they need to armor plate the planes more effectively. The information was presented to Abraham Wald, and you know, here was the, the details about the gun holes and where they were and how the fuselage, you know, the fuselage looked like Swiss cheese and, Swiss cheese and the, the wings had some holes in it. And um, as he was looking at the data, he noticed that the engine didn't have that many holes. 
And most of the researchers looking at the data said, oh, okay, we need to armor plate the fuselage more effectively. That way, our planes don't crash. And Abraham Wald, in a stroke of genius, said, no, you're missing it. We don't need to armor plate the fuselage. And they're like, but that's where all the holes on these planes are. He said, no, you don't need to armor plate the planes that are here. You need to armor plate the planes that never make it back here. It's the planes that never land that we're interested in, not the ones who do. And what he noticed was that the engine and the engine compartment didn't have a lot of holes as they studied the planes that came back, which led him to have two conclusions. Either the axis forces really had an aversion towards shooting the engine, or the airplanes themselves couldn't take a lot of hits in the engines and keep flying. And because of that, Abraham Wald ordered that airplane engine compartments be armored and strengthened. And his shift allowed a lot more planes to stay up in the air. And it was a technological advance that can continued for decades that followed. You see, what Abraham Wald had was an ability to not just look at what was being presented that would seem right, but he had an ability to step forward and cross-examine it. It was like he had this invisible framework in his mind. And that framework is what Solomon is trying to communicate in this passage. Let me illustrate it this way. Let's say you're scrolling through your social media feed and you actually find a friend who has this post. Now, in this politicized age, some of you would probably judge him because he's traveling. Some of you would judge him because he's not wearing a mask. Some of you would be jealous that he's in this exotic place. So I recognize even in this day and age, like, this picture can still be politicized, right? Like we can easily fall into the judgment trap. But let's just imagine it's 2019 and we see this post, right? So here's this post of this guy and we see him in this exotic location. Now, most of us would move on. But Abraham Wald, doing what Solomon is trying to teach his children to do, would realize, wait, this is a framed picture. The actual picture is this. Here's a guy in his living room taking a selfie with the picture behind him. And it just looks like he's in some exotic location. And what Abraham Wald understood, what Solomon is communicating, is that everything that we hear and see is a lot like a picture. There's the thing that's presented the first time, and that's the framed picture. The argument, the Democratic side, the Republican side, they're all framed pictures. But most of us don't even know they're framed, right? So notice the television. This television is framed. There is a frame all around it, and that frame contains everything in it. But to step forward and cross-examine means that we want to see the full picture. We want to see not just the framed portion being presented, but like Abraham Wall did with airplanes, to step back and to see the whole picture, not just the framed one. That you want to zoom in, you want to look at the details and get clarity, and you want to zoom out and take a step back and say, okay, I need some perspective. I need context. I need, I need to define the terms. Because a lot of times, misinformation uh, confusing illustrations, uh, they, they come out of 
terms not being defined. So, for example, this is a little bit of a um, kind of a tragic, intense um, political debate right now. But in 2017, there was about 37,000 plus gun deaths in America. Now, that number is jarring because each one of those numbers is a human. The challenge with statistics is that one, one is a person while um, 100,000 is a stat, right? So one's a story, 100,000 is a, a stat, and we lose the disconnect. And so oftentimes, news stories are trying to draw you back to the personal connection. And so the 37,000 number is tragic. But that number gets thrown on billboards, and without context, without understanding, we could draw the wrong conclusions. We hear gun-related deaths. What does that mean? And this is where getting the full picture can help to define a term and say gun-related death. What does that mean according to whoever's providing the statistic? And what you find is that a tragic number becomes even more tragic. And that 60% of that 37,000 gun-related deaths are suicide. And that there are some of those that are mass shootings. And each one of those are tragic things that need their own solution. But the challenge is, is if you just see a headline, and you just see a number, and you don't, you don't take a step back and see the full picture, then we could miss or misapply solutions. Or we could assume our thoughts onto the stat and the story. And, and while the 37,000 number and that story is, is really tragic, it happens in a lot of non-tragic areas too. See, one of the things that works against us as humans is we have this tendency, and Solomon recognized this, which is why he's coaching his children to, to not just passively fill the opinion, but to step forward and actively form it and cross-examine it, is that we have this tendency uh, that sociologists, psychologists have called the illusion of explanatory knowledge, the illusion of explanatory knowledge. And that sounds really fancy, but it's this, that when we hear something, oftentimes we overestimate our understanding of that information. So for example, on a scale of one to 10, I've already given you a little bit of a hint. How confident do you feel about how you understand how a toilet works? Now, if you're a plumber, this is not your question, all right? So give yourself a number, and, and be honest. You know I'm tricking you, so just, just roll with it for a second. Okay, so let's say I would say I, I'm a nine. I totally understand a toilet. Um, I use it regularly, so I know how it works, right? Um, then the follow-up question would be, grab a sheet of paper and draw out for me the inner workings of a toilet and explain the physics, the mechanics of how the toilet flushes, and... Um, Explain to me why there's no smells from sewage that leaks into your home from the toilet. I'm like, really be like super detailed around the toilet. Or if you are a plumber, maybe it's a zipper. You know, ask the same question. How confident do you feel about a zipper? Now, draw and explain the mechanics and the physics of how a zipper works. Or a bicycle and how it works. See, oftentimes, we, we substitute a shallow understanding for what we think is actually substantial. And simply asking the question, well, how does it work? 
Or how would I explain it to a five-year-old? Often, we'll push in just enough for the illusion to disappear. Many of us feel like we understand the Democratic position, the Republican position. Many of us feel like we understand the Democratic Socialist position. Right? And we can say, oh, I understand it. But if someone asked you the question, well, what does it mean? How, how did they arrive at that opinion? How did they form that conclusion? That's typically enough questions to make it start to fall apart. Richard Feynman, who's a Nobel Prize winning physicist, um, I think nailed it on the head when he said, I learned very early the difference between knowing the name of something and knowing something. There are a lot of people in this current climate and age who know a lot of names for something. But I'm not sure they know the something. That they tweet, retweet, Facebook post about. And this is a human struggle to confuse the name of something between the knowing something. We do this with God. That it's one thing to know the name, Jesus. It's another thing to know Jesus. It's one thing to grow up in a church and to be around the name of something. It's another thing altogether for it to have transformed your life and you know him. This tendency to confuse the two infects almost everything we do. And I recognize that that can be very overwhelming. Because the more you process through and the more you think and reflect on what Solomon is saying and the way Feynman kind of summarizes it succinctly with a sentence, you can start to say, well, if that's the case, I don't know if I should have any dialogue about a lot of things with people. Because I've got to do a ton of research before I open my mouth. And that's kind of Solomon's point. He's saying, look, you're going to decide potential life and death of an individual. You may decide whether someone loses their entire farm or estate. Your words, your conclusions that you draw, son, daughter, will have weight. So it's best to wait. Don't hurry up and feel. Slow down and think. Don't make the mistake between knowing the name of something and thinking that you know the something. Because our feelings are strong and our emotions can cause us to move when we really should sit back and think some more. And I think if anybody should be able to embrace this way of processing, it should be Christians. In fact, one of my mentors um, is arguably one of the smartest men in Christianity today. He frustrates me to the nth degree. I'll ask questions, and I'm like, what do you think about this, or what do you think about this, or what do you think about this? And um, for every three questions I've been able to ask him, um, two of them, he normally answers, I don't know. I haven't looked into that. I haven't studied that. And I'm like, hold up, man. You have forgotten more than I have learned. I, I don't know. You want me to give you an answer, and I simply don't have one. 
If I was to open my mouth, I wouldn't be speaking with information. I'd be speaking out of ignorance. And I would rather speak out of information. And being around him has really helped to kind of shape and form. But the more I've thought about how he does that, I realize that this is actually rooted in Christianity. Here's a man who's written countless best-selling books, who has watched every single week on television channels and is um, pastors one of the largest churches in America. And yet he has a humility that is simply amazing. He likes to say, hey, be a student, not a critic of society. And that what he does, I think, is embodied in the very nature of Christianity, right? Well, it has nothing to do with this passage. There's a word in here that I hope as you're memorizing this passage that it, it's a trigger for you to think through it. In a lawsuit, the first to speak seems right until someone comes forward and cross-examines it. This word cross stood out to me as I was working through it. I was like, man, that's at the core of why I think Christians in the middle of this um, kind of politicized age of outrage could be people who show the world a better way. You see, what makes a Christian at the core of our message is that we believe God himself stepped into planet Earth, that his empathetic presence close to us, provided a way for us, and that for us to follow him and become more like him, but that in order to completely reconcile the relationship, the, the separation between he and us, that he went to a cross, and on that physical cross, at that brutal death, that he died not for the punishment that passed down by the Roman government, but that he died for the punishment that should have been passed on to us. That he, on the cross, took the weight of our choices, took the weight of our failures to love and to live for him. Took our small lies and our big ones. Took all the sins. And that he bore the weight of those. And to be a Christian literally means that you come to the cross and that you acknowledge that what you have done is what separated you relationally from God. And that may sound deep or that may sound profound, but this is something as humans we experience all the time. When we were small and we said something back to our parents or we did something wrong, even though we were in the same room with them, we would look down and not want to look at them because we learned at an early age intuitively that you can be physically present and relationally distant. Some of you are in marriages right now where you are physically together, but you are relationally separated. And that unless someone takes a step, unless someone bears the weight of the choices that have been made and forgives, that relationship doesn't get restored. We take for granted that that mechanism is present everywhere in our life. And it shouldn't be that surprising since it is the undergirding mechanism between the relationship God desires to have with you and I too. Except that the penalty is a lot bigger than just eating a cookie from the cookie jar. And that Jesus did that so that we could be made right with him. And to be a Christian simply means to acknowledge it. To see what you did was what caused him to end up there where he was. And that takes humility. 
That takes the ability to say the words, I was wrong. God, I was wrong. We don't like to say that, do we? We don't like to admit to other people that we were wrong. We don't want to acknowledge. We oftentimes are constantly posturing and explaining and justifying and giving excuses for why we did what we did in our arguments with our spouses or significant others or our friends or family members. Instead of seeing what we did wrong, we want to throw back why we did it. Instead of acknowledging the hurtful words, we want to say, but you said that first, as if somehow their actions was the justification for yours. It takes humility to say, look, I'm not responsible for you, but I am responsible for me. I was wrong. What I said was wrong. What I did was wrong. I'm embarrassed by it. I'm ashamed of it. But it was wrong, and I'm sorry. The humility to say that to another human being. The humility to be able to say that in the midst of an argument. Or to say that to God. Is at the very core of our faith. And I think we should be the best people to argue with. Because we don't get trapped up. We don't demonize. We don't villainize. We don't attack. We listen. And like Jesus modeled for us, we Practice proximity to understand. And even if we don't agree, we seek to understand. Because understanding something is not the same thing as agreeing with it. And that we should be the best cross examiners because of the cross. And that the ability to simply say, I don't know in a conversation doesn't feel very good. But it only doesn't feel good if you think that you're supposed to know everything. But because of the Christian faith, I don't know everything. I know I don't know everything. I can embrace it. It's a gift. That is why I think we should be the best cross-examiners. The cross. That is our talking point. As we engage people, as we interact with people, that we are not people who hurry up and fill but that we recognize the brokenness inside of us that can take us down broken paths. And so we slow down and we think. We listen. And we engage. Realizing that our perspective is limited. And that just the shift in perspective, to step out of the frame picture, to begin to see the full picture, often takes people. That takes a community of people to be able to do that. And that... If we embrace that way of life, then I think we can stand out in this season where some people aren't even sure if the nation will continue to stand. Right? That we can be hopeful people with gracious words because we serve a gracious God who through the cross, through grace, made a way for us.